You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projections, that's Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolokowski, who is on. What highway are you on, Yitzchak, there, driving through Connecticut into New York State? Well, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already on the 17 in in Middletown, New York, so I'm only about 40 minutes less or less from home. All right, well, on the highway there on a cold, rainy night, and I guess what oh, most people would... Here. It's, it's ice. Very dangerous well, road. So, uh, yes, so we're going to be very careful about what we talk about. Um, but we're going to talk about two films that I, I don't think they make the great category, but definitely the interesting category. And um, this film that I want to talk about is a film that for some reason I couldn't stop watching it because I felt it was somewhat the story of my family in a way. Not not in terms of the plot of what actually happens, but the, where it began. Uh, the name of the film is The House on Telegraph Hill. It's a 1951 film um, that uh, was directed by Robert Wise. Now, Robert Wise eventually, of course, becomes uh, a world-famous director uh, directing a West Side Story. Um, and I think he directed, I think, the first Star Trek film as well. Uh, but he was quite well known as a, uh, and, and he got his start. It's stuck. We talked about this off pod. Uh, he got his start as a um, an assistant to Val Luton. He was the assistant director uh, to Val Luton, who was uh, one of both of our favorites as somebody who knew how to make greatness out of what you would call scraps of of it would seem of. Uh, scraps that didn't seem to go together at all. Somehow, Val Luton was able to turn them into really classic films. So Robert Wise was able to cut his teeth with Val Luton, and eventually, of course, I think most people know more about Robert Wise than Val Luton does. This film, I think, owes a lot to Val Luton's sense of the mystery, and, and, and especially of sort of fooling you about what the story is really about. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what Val Luton did uh, was... And, and, and a lot of it was based on the advertising and what the studio heads wanted uh, was, oh, this is going to be a film about zombies. But of course, um, it was really more about a cycle. Like, for example, I think I Walked with a Zombie is really more about um, uh, of motherhood, about a story of, of a child and its mother, um, even Cat People, which I think is probably the most famous film that Val Luton made, really is really a much different film than what you think. It really isn't about, uh, it really is about lust. It's about desire. Um, it, it, it's almost like, yeah, you think this is your typical horror film with a monster that's going to scare you. It's really about something else altogether. I think that's part of what Val Luton did. I don't know if Robert Wise is as subtle as that, but in this film, you really aren't sure what it's about. Um, it's, uh, it, it starts, and this is the reason why it has a connection to my life and my family. It starts as, as in a voiceover uh, in a concentration camp. Now, the voiceover is 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 provided by Valentino Cortes, who was uh, an Italian actress, started off very young in films. I think Fellini and others might have used her as well. Like, in, 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 and she had somewhat of a, a career in Hollywood and in Italian films. Um, she's the star of the film, and she narrates it. And she starts it in a concentration camp. 
Now, you know, we've talked about what was the first film that ever showed the horrors of the concentration camps. Some people tell you it's Justice Nuremberg. That that might be. Um, there were definitely films that mentioned concentration camps, and some of them mentioned Jews going there. What's interesting is the first seven or eight, nine minutes of this film that are happening, you know, in the concentration camp and the DP camp, there is not one mention of the fact that it's mostly Jews and it would be a Jew. Um, you know, she plays uh, Victoria Kowalska, uh, who has taken over uh, Karen Derkova's identity. Let me explain how that happens. Uh, she's in a concentration camp and her husband has been shot and killed. She's been sent to this camp where they're starving and fighting over everything. Um, the guards are, are, are terribly uh, uh, sadistic to them, hitting them and beating them. And this woman, uh, Karen, who she has taken under her wing, has told her everything about herself, including the fact that her son was sent away to America and is living by a very rich relative in San Francisco, a Polish woman uh, of noble extraction who was able to save herself, who's, who's been living in San Francisco, and, and she sent her son there when he was just an infant. Well, uh, Karen dies, and um, uh, Victoria decides to live her life. She has nothing to live for, but she knows there's, a, there's money and there's a child, and she decides to use her papers uh, when she is debriefed by the Americans who liberate them. Now, let me just stop here for a second. Again, it's 1951. You would think the Jews weren't, you wouldn't be scared to mention the fact the concentration camps were for the Jews. They weren't for your standard Polish citizen. And it's true, in the 1940s, a number of uh, Hollywood films talked about the fascists uh, persecuting the freedom fighters from the Poles. But the average Polish woman would not have been in a concentration camp. The average Polish woman would have been you know, uh, would have lived under the Nazi rule, but she wouldn't have been sent to a camp. And it's interesting how, again, this film uh, refused uh, to use as its characters clearly the, the Jewish story. But this was a, a this was a Jewish story, uh, without there being any mention of any character being Jewish at all. So it's not that she was a Jew. But the movie didn't say it. She was clearly a Christian. She was clearly the name, even the son that was sent away was called Christopher. But I, I thought it was it was it was it was it was interesting. This might be the first film that had images of what a concentration camp might have been like and the desperation of a DP camp uh, and what that was like um, in the DP camp. Uh, the Victoria, who's now masquerading as Karen. Um, is able to send the cable to the relatives. Again, she. The, it seems like the last time old rich Aunt Sophie has seen her was many, many years ago. And she's similar enough looking to the woman that she was protecting who died that she felt she could pass her way off as the old, uh, as Karen. Anyway, it turns out that she has to spend a number of years in the DP camps. Let me just take a little aside here and say, and this is really very similar to my parents' story. It took years to be able to be accepted into the United States. Um, my mother, who I think bears a, a pretty somewhat of a striking resemblance <laughs> to, uh, to uh, Valentino Cortez, I'll show you images of, of them both, um, 
also, uh, as I told you before, off pod, she came into America as herself, but actually as a Polish citizen, as Bela Portnoy, but as Bela Portnoy, not Bela Portnoy, who was a captain in the Russian army, uh, who had gone to medical school in Moscow, but as some Polish citizen who didn't have any papers. So the the records of her being a Russian woman uh, were gone because she entered the United States as a Polish refugee, not as a Russian woman. Um, suffice to say that that isn't much of a secret, but in this film, she sort of struggles with the fact that maybe she has stolen, even though Karen is dead, she perhaps has no right to the life that Karen would have had had she lived. And it is quite a life because it turns out that Sophie um, has died and she died an incredibly wealthy woman living in this incredible mansion on Telegraph Hill overlooking San Francisco Bay. And uh, that is what eventually brings her to San Francisco. Of course, she doesn't just get to San Francisco by herself. Originally, uh, she is met by um, a, a person who is the guardian of her son. And in many ways, the guardian and the uh, person who is uh, sort of taking care of this incredible amount of money, which he won't own, but Aunt Sophie has left it to, not to uh, Karen, but has left it to Karen's child. So therefore the child is the, this nine-year-old boy is the one who will inherit this incredible wealth and this beautiful house. And who is who she meets who's the guardian that is Richard Basart. Remember a couple of, uh, I think it might have been a year or two ago or a year or so ago, I think we highlighted a film that Basehart was in that I thought was really wonderful. It was called Tension um, with Audrey Trotter and Sid Charisse, where Basehart basically plays, if you remember, sort of like a double role, like a, a mild-mannered, like nebbish who like takes on a certain persona of himself as being this tough guy who could go, you know, and, and, and someone like a killer persona. Um, Basehart sort of does a similar job here. That was in 1950, Tension. In 1951, you, you sort of don't know what's really going on with him. It's sort of like Charles Boyer a little bit uh, in Gaslight. Um, he has he has charm. He has a certain amount of gravitas and presence. Um, and, you know, he talks very openly about the pain of of poverty. And, and, and yet, you sort of get the feeling that uh, he actually does love this woman, this refugee woman. He wines and dines her. He, he allows her to, to, on the expense account of the of the estate, uh, to buy beautiful clothes, and gives her the. They eventually get married, and they are in. Uh, they come back to uh, to San Francisco to this house, and she meets this boy who is not really her son, but. Um, you know, is dressed up in a Cub Scout uniform, being tended to by, you know, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think last week, I talked about um, Dame Judith Anderson. There's a Dame Judith Anderson sort of person, the the uh, governess who has been taking care of the boy, um, and Faye Baker, who plays this governess, uh, sort of plays her with the same sort of like sense of possible um, is she cruel? What is she really? What evil machinations does she have? Um, so it's basically the movie is sort of a, in a way, a little bit of a pastiche of of Gaslight of Rebecca, um, 
but what I thought really was interesting was that it has, um, you know, it, it had that uh, concentration camp aspect to it. This idea that she herself isn't just some sort of waif like Joan Fontaine was in in Rebecca, but actually she was in a way carrying guilt herself. Um, I see when I go onto the, uh, the IMDb website, I see there's actually five uh, different writers uh, that worked on this on, on this on this plot because it was sort of like a sort of <laughs> sort of a little Frankenstein monster of a little bit of, of everything in it. Um, there's a lot of uh, beautiful shots of San Francisco. Um, you know, San Francisco. I think you know if you remember, I uh, recommended a film a number of months ago called Gentleman Jim. Which was also, and you really get a sense of what San Francisco was like in the 1950s. It doesn't have the color, the lush color of Vertigo, which is also set in San Francisco in that area, uh, and it's nothing like. It doesn't have the uh, frenetic energy of uh, and the, the very famous uh, chase scene going down those uh, uh, those incredible hills in San Francisco. But those hills are present here, and there are uh, uh, there is a pretty scary. Um, scene where uh, you know, like your typical, oh, her brakes have been cut, and uh, uh, Valentino Cortez is driving. Uh, you know, obviously it's it's projected on the screen, but it does give you somewhat of the image of of the fear of a car out of control in a in a scary San Francisco street. I should also mention, by the way, uh, I think a similar um, uh, thing was done in What's Up Doc, Peter Bogdanovich's film with Barbara Streisand. And Ryan O'Neill, you also, I think, I have going down this the the San Francisco roads. Um, so, is San Francisco? I think is highlighted very nicely, uh, and 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 you definitely are a little bit wondering. Perhaps she, is, as a concentration camp survivor, is obsessing, and maybe she is haunted, and therefore she can't really trust anyone. And maybe Richard Basehart's just a is a very decent guy. Um, there is another actor uh, in the film, sort of to make it into a triangle, um, and that is, uh, you might have heard of this actor, it's called William Lundigan. William Lundigan, a big tall fellow who uh, plays, you know, in, the, in these ridiculous coincidences, he was the major who uh, debriefed her in the DP camp, and he also happens to be a lawyer who works in San Francisco and has never been really good friends with Basehart's character. Um, interesting again the, the names of the of the characters um, Basart's character is called Alan Spender <laughs> somebody who's just been waiting for money to um, and you know, here she is married to him and well you know, who knows uh, there's a, yeah, you know, the usual Hollywood codes here you know they don't ever sleep together in the same bed but clearly um, you, you get a sense of um, you know, how he's using her and does he, you know, does he really love her? Does he really care for her? But again, to me, the the, the appeal of the story, uh, the, the child actor who plays uh, the nine-year-old boy, again, is <laughs> very forgetful uh, in his role, but there is a sense of dread that the film, I think, uh, is able to successfully elicit about is the boy in danger? Is is she in danger? Um, I think as it becomes obvious uh, that it isn't just in her mind, um, I think the film sort of becomes extremely 
uh, predictable about what 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 is going what is going to happen. Um, however, I should say the final couple of minutes uh, do pack a little bit of a surprise about what about what really is going to happen. And I would say that although Victoria Cortez uh, does a very uh, fine job carrying the film, I think Basart um, really is uh, is able to convey pathos. Uh, he's not your typical, you know, villain. Uh, he clearly is a person with a lot of issues, and I think uh, Basehart was able to to give that over well. Again, I of course remember Richard Basehart when I was growing up. It's like from a voyage to the bottom of the sea, where he was, I think, the commander of the submarine. Uh, he was on that program for a number of years, and I, I always really just thought of him as a very wooden actor. And I see that that's not really the case. I think that in when he broke out, when he, you know, his breakout films in the late '40s and early '50s, I think really bespoke of a of a of a of a, of a person of substance and somebody. I think that I don't know if he ever really reached his potential in Hollywood, but I think this film, plus tension, the one I mentioned before, I think really highlights him in in in, in a very good way. And I think therefore, um, yeah, it's 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 definitely for. Uh, it might be the first concentration camp uh, hero film, um, but I think it's uh, it's also even without that. I think it's definitely it keeps your interest, and you know, despite the uh, aspects that seem to be uh, Yitzchak. I know you have one of your favorite directors, probably in many people's mind, the sort of like the Yore Sharuchni of Val Luton, one of Roger Corman's gems of nineteen sixty three. Uh, X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Again, it's so laughable, but yeah. So why don't you, you said you've been waiting for years to see it, and now that you've seen it, um, you really liked it. Yeah, the t- the title uh, kind of sounds a lot more schlocky than the movie is. I mean, it is a schlocky movie, and it is a expo- very exploitation type of a movie. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I had a VHS tape of a certain movie, uh, Reptilicus, which was, actually a Danish movie, if I'm not mistaken, that was dubbed into English. Very horrible. Um, one, probably one of the worst monster movies ever, but still a lot of fun for fans of those type of movies. And there were previews for several movies in the, you know, before or after, I think it was before that movie. Um, and one of the movies was this one, X the Man with the X-Ray Eyes, and I never had an opportunity to see it. I had a book on the history of science fiction movies, I believe by Jeff Rovin, which sounds like a Jewish name. Um, and he, he spoke about this movie and he, and he had some admiration for the movie. And finally, this last, let's say Shabbos, now that Shabbos is over early, uh, I could watch Spanguli. And that was the, the feature on Spanguli this week was X, the man with the X-ray eyes. With, uh, I knew Ray Milan was the was the um, was the main role, Doctor Xavier. Who I mean, it's, it's the the beginning of the movie is rather hokey and, and formulaic, and and just what you're used to with these type of mad scientist movies uh, about a scientist who is breaking all the rules. He's he's experimenting on himself, which is something you're never supposed to do. Uh, but because he didn't have anyone else to, to do the experiment on, he didn't trust anyone else. 
by that wonderful Jewish character actor, uh, Harold J. Stowe, right? As the, I think is his, 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 his doctor buddy who tells him, this is something you shouldn't be messing with, right? This is, this is you're going too far. Right? Well, is- there, there's two issues. One is that he's, ex- the, the bigger issue I think for him is that he's experimenting on himself. And the other side is that uh, he, they don't have the funding. I think, I think one of the uh, people in the boardroom, they have a, you know, a scene from the boardroom discussing the funding and more than halfway through the movie, probably the climax of the film, is that he kills this friend of his who's a scientist, pushes him out the window when he tries to stop him from experimenting on himself. And he gets very angry. And it reminds me somewhat of Claude Rains in, in The Invisible Man, the same type of trope where the scientist is experimenting on himself. He, he, and, he, and it drives him mad, you know, the, the new power that he has. So, uh, I mean, there's some, you know, silly scenes where he goes to a, to a party and he's able to see everyone naked. And, you know, he, he, how, uh, you know, comments that he makes about that and things like that. But then, uh, and obviously- I mean, let's, let, let's talk about a little bit about Ray Milland. Um, you know, Ray Milland sort of, you know, he almost had a career as a matinee idol. Um, and yet, you know, he always, had that sense of menace about him. Um, you know, as a very young actor, he he sort of played sort of the playboy role. But I think, you know, even in the mid-40s, of course, his uh, his his Oscar vehicle, The Lost Weekend, um, you know, he you know, he, he well, I, I don't think he was ever able to sustain that. Just he's just like a Cary Grant, a, you know, good looking fellow with a sort of an English accent. Um, you know, he ended up I think he pushed himself towards sort of um, in Thailand for murder, um, you know, having him as this, you know, you know extremely brilliant but ruthless killer. Um, and but he was still, in a way, part of the old Hollywood. But I think in the '60s, instead of sort of like, you know, you know, you know hosting television shows as I'm an old Hollywood movie star. He ended up making these hokey type of films, right? I mean, I think he, I think he made this, 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 this film with Rosie Greer called "The Guy with Two Heads," right? The Man with Two Heads. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was already in the seventies that he made that one. Right, uh, and, but 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 I think in general he, he he did not age gracefully as like mm-hmm. let's say Walter Pigeon or Gregory Peck did, like at the end of their career, like trying to take sort of like you know, the supporting, you know, back roles. Um, he really, you know, threw himself into schlock. And again, yeah, I think in the seventies, it was much worse. He was, you know, he was in, in that one, the man with two heads and, or, and he was also in uh, Prague where he plays just this, uh, this old uh, Southern uh, plantation owner who's just killing frogs and snakes and alligators for no reason and then they wind up they're not giants or monsters or anything but they wind up attacking him and I think killing him at the end of the movie and it's just a it's a very plotting and, and depressing type of movie the, the frogs movie uh, this right. one and, 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 and I, I think Milan sported a toupee uh, pretty much in his you know even in his 40s and 50s but 
I remember, you know, a number of films he made. Like, yeah, he was like this old bald guy. Like, he played, he really, you know, I guess he he was desperate for the money. Like, he played very, you know, grotesque characters, uh, you know, in his career. You know, he, you know, you know, you know Cary Grant, who was obviously much wealthier and, and much more popular. He just said, okay, I'm finished. You know, you know, if you want me to come to the Kennedy center, I'll come. But he, you know, Milan just kept on playing roles there. I remember him in love story where he plays um, a Ryan O'Neill, uh, Ryan O'Neill's dad, uh, who, who completely dismisses, of course, Ali McGraw's character. Um, and, uh, you know, he, and again, he, this, he didn't mind being nasty I also think, you know, he was mailing it in, but you, you're telling me that in X, he still gives a, a, a pretty solid performance, right? He isn't just mailing in his, his lines. Well, I think, I think, I think he's talented enough that even when he mails it in, he, uh, he sounds, you know, just like you said, he had, he had that somewhat of an accent and it was definitely better than frogs. It was uh, maybe on par with another movie he made around in the sixties called which was a very violent and, and pretty shocking movie, as this one really kind of was for that time. It was a movie called The Panic in Year Zero. That yeah. was, I think, also mentioned in that, in as the you know the uh, the uh, the preview for that movie was also on a tape that I had seen. And again, I had seen Panic in Year Zero a few years ago. I only really had the stomach to watch it once. This one, I would be willing to panic in your zero again seems like it's about five or six years too late it's really a, a, a film about nuclear war and again you know it was made uh, right after failsafe and uh Doc, and dr strangelove but this is a film about a uh a, a los angeles family um that has to deal with the fact that a, a nuclear uh, nuclear explosion has just destroyed los angeles right right and, and- and they, and they deal with marauding gangs and rapists, and it's really, really quite horrific. And the the one scene where Milan's daughter gets raped by the by the gang, and then I, he kills the rapists, and it's it's really quite shocking. Obviously, they don't show rape, but we, but it's it's more than just uh, hinted to. It's very obvious what happened in that movie. Uh, yeah, I, I think Frankie Avalon is in that film. Playing- yeah. Frankie Avalon's in that movie playing Ray Milland's son. But, you know, again, it's it's weird because, of course, Ray Milland uh, himself directed that film. Um, right. And, but, but he was, in that film, at least, you know, he's, he's, the, he's like a Jimmy Stewart, you know, American dad um, <laughs> with a lot more edge to him, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not afraid to take revenge, to kill people. Uh, you know, to, to recognize, you know, the society has fallen apart, but then he's still looking forward to a day when things will be better. Uh, this movie, the the, ex, the man with x-ray eyes, after he kills his friend, really takes a, a very sharp turn. He has to run away and hide because he's, he's, he's wanted for murder. So he winds up joining a circus and he's, he's He's doing a, a mind reading act, and and he he's blindfolded, and nobody knows how does he know all these things. And the carny there is Don Rickles. So this is more than halfway, maybe even two thirds of the movie. Don Rickles comes out, and he really I think steals the show. Uh, 
I understand that they were both uh, Milan and Rickles were once on Johnny Carson's show at the same the same night, and uh, and Milan was saying, you know, everyone knows what a great comedian that Rickles is, but they didn't know what a great dramatic actor he is. And I think they actually appeared in more than one film together. And uh, this, you know, this role, obviously he's a, a comedic type of character, but he's, he's, not a, he's not a comedic character. He's more of a, you know, he, he, he's, in a way he, he, he's almost like, like the fool in King Lear that, that is more, uh, you know, uh, you know he's, he's somewhat conniving and he's somewhat, he's a wise character, but he, he's, he's not such a good character. So in other words, he's able to strip away the pretentiousness that uh, that Dr. Xavier, Ray Milan's character has and to really get to the heart of things about what's really going on. Um, yes, yeah, so, how, so the, how, the, thing, the thing that really gets me, that really grabbed me in this movie was, first of all, like, uh, there's, you know, there's a, a, a point that's brought out, like, and it's not, it's not really even intentional that, that Rickle says, you know, if he were, if he had this power to, to see through things, he would just look at all the, all, all the undressed women that his poor eyes could handle. I think, you know, that's realizing, you know, the importance of Shmir Sinayim is that, you know, after a while, a person gets, you know, they, they, they lose the excitement and the, that his poor eyes, that those words that his poor eyes could handle really uh, brought out you know, uh, yeah. I think a little bit of unintentional musser. But then the other thing that, uh, you know, reminds Which, me... Again, th this, by the way, is, you know, one of the ideas of, you know, you know when we talk about being titillated by, by, by what's not there, right? By, by the strip right. tease. The whole idea of the strip tease is that, you know, right? But if everything, if you see everything, right? If yeah. you end up, if you end up having x-ray eyes, so... You know, the idea of, of a coquettish, luring person, right? The dance of the seven veils. It's all about, you see, now I'm going to reveal it. You didn't see it up until now, but now right. you're able to see something. But if you if you have x-ray eyes, then you basically always see through everything. Eventually, yeah. it's like in a nudist colony where you don't really care. Where eventually, okay. Yeah. Examine here is that when, you know, he, he realized, you know, he needs to make money to continue his studies. To continue his experiments, and Rickles comes up with an idea. He said, "We're going to go into the city, rent a little place, not advertise, just word of mouth by the poor people, and we're not even going to charge money. We're just going to take whatever donations we receive." And he's going to be this healer, and it's you know the same like you know you'd have a makubul or a rebbe that you know, has that, like, there was one, there was one Rebbe who was, a, a, he was friends with, um, with the uh, Jackie Gleason, uh, one Hasidish Rebbe who was known to be a charlatan, and he, he had his, uh, his Gaba listening to the, uh, the intercom, he, you know, he had an intercom playing when the Gaba was talking to people, and people bought into it, and the same thing here, it, it was, you know, he was providing something real, and he was helping people. He, you know, and he was a doctor also, so he was able to actually know what was wrong, to heal people, to know exactly what what to do. And uh, and th that those scenes, you know, where 
you know, at, at, at Don Rickles is kind of the guy in the waiting room, you know, saying, you know, you, you'll get your chance to see the healer, uh, you know, just wait your turn. And the, all these people would come. But then when they realized who he was, the police were after him. Like you said, at the end, he winds up at a tent revival. Um, Corman, is, is, Corman is still alive. He's a lapsed Catholic. But here you have an evangelical, very uh, like Southern Baptist type of uh, Protestant tent revival. And they were you know, very you know, talking about how everyone's going to hell. It, it was a very extreme type of thing that you probably wouldn't hear in a lot of churches today as, as you know, even the evangelical churches have gotten rather liberal and they don't like to talk about heavy subjects like that. You're more likely to hear, you know, just something friendly from Joel Osteen about feeling good about yourself and, and thinking the power of positive thinking and things like that. And uh, this, uh, you know, this fellow, he's saying, you know, how he's, the doctor, Xavier, he's talking about how he sees heaven and hell, and he sees darkness, and he sees light, and the preacher says, you know, you're, you're tempted by the devil, and then he quotes a, a passage from, from the Christian books they call the New Testament, and he says, if your eye offends thee, pluck it out, and then all the people in the church start saying, pluck it out, pluck it out, so he, he takes off his sunglasses. He shows that his eyes are glowing yellow, looking really weird. And he plucks out his eyes and it's just plain black, not bloody or gory. And that's how the movie ends. Now, Spenguli mentioned that there's an urban legend or uh, something that actually Stephen King suggested was that the original way that the, the story was written was that after he plucks out his eyes, Ray Milan screams out, I can still see. And but that the that the censors for some reason took that out of the movie because it would be too shocking. But uh, Corman said that there was never such a line, and you leave it to to Stephen King to rewrite uh, one of his movies and you know, maybe <laughs> make it. Look, I think it's some of the um, some of the stills and some of the stuff that you can see about this film on YouTube and others. Uh, Corman shot it in very crisp color. It's as it is not it, it, it's not just one of these. You know, Plan Nine from Outer Space. It, it actually does have uh, a, a very nice, uh, you know, vivid, uh, modern look to it. And I think, especially, it, especially that most of the movies that he was doing at that time in color were gothic movies. So they were, and and they were very good. Most of them, except for the Terror, was the only one that was totally nonsensical and ridiculous, and it still kind of looked pretty interesting. But it was a different type of, those were all dark and the, and the castles and very gothic looking. This was a modern contemporary movie. You don't really get an idea which city this is taking place in. Probably probably somewhere in New York City. And Our stories, morality stories, I think these are, um, as you say, tropes that you, know, you have to be able to bring it out in a way that is novel and different. The fact that the film has sort of like, in, in, in your mind, kept its vitality over 60 years, I think we uh, attest to something. Um, and you know, I'm always happy to give Rickles a plug because despite the fact that he's the king of Inoz Dvorin, the king of the insult comic, um, you know, when you hear him talk about his life and especially his connection to Judaism, you, you have to be very moved um, 
when he talks about uh, going to his father's kever, when he talks about saying Kaddish, uh, he, even when he speaks in his, some of his jokes on the old Karshim show, when he talks about what Rosh Hashanah is and other Yom Tovim, he does it in a way that uh, is not dismissive. Um, you know, he, he, believe me, if you gather his jokes about being Jewish, they're very funny. But I think, you, you, I think he had an adulation and a respect for Judaism. Um, and, and God gave him, really, despite, you know, what you would call his, his bitter uh, disposition. I, I, you know, God gave him tremendous arikos yomim and aseichel really till, till very much the end. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, he ended up outliving so many of his contemporaries, the Shecky Greens and the Soupy Sales and uh, Buddy Hackett's and others, uh, you know, that, that he's around with, or even Tim Conway. Um, but, you know, he, he, I'm always happy to say it again. We used to always talk about vintage TV. You, you can find Rickles almost everywhere, as we've, as we've spoken about. Um, it's, it's nice to, to mention a film where um, you know, good sense to use Rickles, where you can you know, make use of his sort of sweaty personality uh, to keep the trajectory of the film going. And it sounds like as that Carney character, uh, Corman really uh, did a good job in terms of picking the right guy for the job. Uh, Robert Wise, um, who you know, zeroed in on Valentino Cortez, uh, I think also was a, a wonderful choice. Um, you know, she really, I, I think, does convey uh, the sense of someone who has been through hell and who, uh, who carries within them sort of a guilt uh, and fear. Uh, you know, you could have really gone with, um, and you could have probably, Wise probably could have gotten other actresses. You know, it could have been, you know, Ingrid Bergman or someone. But I think, you know, he went with someone who, who wasn't necessarily a, you know, a, a, a knockdown gorgeous beauty, but somebody who looked like a real person who happened to be attractive but someone who was a real person. I think that's, you know, I think that's part of what good filmmaking is about. Uh, you know, obviously part of it is, is the escape of the film. And, you know, but as when we talked about Cary Grant as Dr. Pretorius and people, uh, right, and people will talk. And I mentioned how, you know, how weird that was. Um, I, I think, you know, having, you know, an a, 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 a aging Ray Milland um, and sort of like a, uh, a you know, Richard Basehart is not a matinee idol. I think these, the, these films, uh, you know, when, when the, when those type of real human emotions are able to be exhibited by people who in the audience, oh, yeah, I, I can relate to that. And I think that's, you know, that's really sometimes the strength of the film. It doesn't have to be type of obvious what is it uh, that we lust for what is it that we want what is it that you know we think we need um and how our ambitions can sometimes really uh get the better of us uh and how we could perhaps come to terms with sometimes acting in the worst way and are, are you able to recover from that are you able to move on from that and i think that's uh Something that you know you can you know contrast, uh, I guess the two leads clearly you know, as Harold <laughs> Harold J Stone tells him you know you can't play God. Certain things we have to be happy 
with our limitations as a human being. I think that's part of what perhaps both films uh, sort of, you know, let us know that, that, that our limitations are something we can live with, we can embrace, and we can move on, and there's possibilities. So that's my idea, my friends. We'll check in. Watch your step, please, on the way out. We'll catch you again next time. Don't hit a cow. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.